here's an issue with the industry as a whole. Every year, the number of advisors and planners is diminishing. It's going down. But year after year, the number of consumers who deserve to get access to uh, fiduciary advice at a price that they could afford increases. And so without technology, I don't see the equation going in the right direction. You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Today's topic is technology, and we have an exciting interview with technology guru Bill Winterberg from FPPAD. If you've been around financial planning any time, Bill's name has become synonymous with financial planning technology. Bill is widely recognized as an independent authority on technology and financial services or planning. FPPAD started in 2008 and has been a leading source of technology news and thought leadership since then. Needless to say, I think this is a great interview and really excited for everyone to hear it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Bill. Well, it's my pleasure, Hannah. So you've had one of those careers that I think has just been fun to watch. For the listeners who haven't heard your career path, could you talk a little bit about where you started and where you are now? Okay. It's kind of weaving and meandering, but here's the lowdown. Before I got into financial services, I was a software engineer. I wrote embedded code, mostly in C, that would be compiled to run on super inexpensive 8-bit microprocessors. It started out with printer drivers at Hewlett-Packard, and then I was actually recruited to work for a company called LeapFrog Toys and worked on toy software for the better part of seven and a half years. So that was my first career before I got into financial services. While I was at LeapFrog, they went public, like 2001, at the height of the dot-com bust. Here's a little toy company that actually had sales and basically invented the electronic educational toy market. And so they were kind of a Wall Street darling. And that was my first introduction into the world of financial services and wealth management. Because lo and behold, all of us as employees who had some stock options, not life-changing stock options, we still got a bunch of calls from all the wirehouse brokers who wanted to help us with our newfound wealth. You know, it's hard to do air quotes on these podcasts, but that's, you know, quote unquote, newfound wealth. And I for some reason, had that little flag or that person on my shoulder saying, you know, these these people probably aren't going to act in your best interest. They want to sell you something. So I learned what I could about finances and soon became the person that my colleagues trusted for advice around taxes and options and all sorts of complicated money stuff because I didn't have a sales agenda. And so fast forward to 2005, the company actually did not have a great... uh, second or third follow-up product to its initial uh, LeapPad learning system success. So I was caught up in a round of layoffs. So I took that opportunity in 2005 to say, yeah, I, do I want to be working in code and software for the rest of my life? The answer was no. So what could I do? And I thought, well, there's this whole business of financial services and financial planning. Let me see what I can do with that. So I had moved from California where LeapFrog was to Maryland because my wife uh, was going to med school in Baltimore. And I found a firm that was an OSJ. It was a part of a broker dealer firm and they needed somebody to run operations for the business. So I joined that firm and learned really quickly about all the back office operations and technology that was used in wealth management and financial services. Uh, Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, that job only lasted nine months uh, because I moved 
over to Oregon because of my wife's career uh, pathway once she graduated. But also it was that nine months was, boy, you know, is there more than just the brokerage environment to financial services? And fortunately, the answer is yes. So when I landed in Portland, Oregon, I started my own RIA, set that up from scratch, uh, and then also worked for a fee-only firm in the Portland, Oregon area and helped them with their back office technology. And then again, my wife um, matriculated from her residency program and went to Dallas, Texas for more training. And that's when I decided in 2009, well, I should wind down and stop the individual RIA stuff and just do this full-time technology consulting because there was a benefit to this firm that I worked with. I had used technology in my own RIA. And if it was really beneficial to everybody in that circle, well, it should be beneficial to advisors nationwide. So that was when in 2009, I started FVPAD as a consulting firm, as well as a blog and public site for technology information for advisors. And I've been doing that full time ever since 2009. So that that's a a big jump from working for nine months and then starting your, your own RIA that was kind of before, I guess, this big solo practitioner trend started. Like, did you find that there were a lot of people doing that at the time? Or were you kind of an anomaly? I suppose I was a little bit of an anomaly because I was not able to find a vibrant community of other like-minded individuals who were just starting their own RIAs from scratch. Um, it's because I had that technology background, I was interested in running a business with a laptop and an internet connection. Uh, I think I had a, a Google Voice account, which I still have today, that I started back then because it would ring to my cell phone, which was one of those crazy Motorola flip phones at the time in 2006, um, and my house phone and uh, uh, wherever else I wanted to be. And um, because my wife was in medicine, she was at the residency program at OHSU, actually had an interesting niche market with attracting the residents and fellows in graduate medical education. And it was something that I knew because I lived it along with my wife. And I was able to help the other residents and fellows because they were getting paid peanuts, considering that they worked 80 to 100 hours a week. So they basically make like six bucks an hour. But when they leave their residency and fellowship program, their income can triple or quadruple. So why don't I do something low cost, affordable, that sets great foundations in the beginning and do it at a low cost, which means I have to run from a laptop and a mobile phone. I, I can't afford a $1,000 office space or even a $500 office space when I can take that money and put it back into technology and help more people. And so I really couldn't find that many like-minded people. So that's kind of why I started the blog and the website, uh, FPPAD, to just talk about the things that I was doing from a technology perspective. And I think over the years, that's attracted more and more people uh, to be subscribers and to participate in my content, because there's definitely more and more opportunities today for the entrepreneurial-minded advisors to start their own RIA from scratch. One of the things I always tell people is that it's really important to know if you're that entrepreneur type person or if you're more of that employee type person, because there's different mindsets with that. With your background, I mean, you were an employee of these firms, and then all of a sudden you switched to being the entrepreneur. Did you ever, did you expect yourself to kind of pursue that entrepreneur route? Was that, was that something that you were always interested in, or did you find yourself kind of having to do that out of necessity? And how was that transition for you? Really good question. Um, I had always been an employee up until 2009. I worked for Hewlett Packard as an employee. I was an employee for LeapFrog. I was the employee in the broker-dealer firm. Um, for a short stint, I started my own RIA in Portland, but I also was an employee at that fee-only firm for the better part of two years. Kind of ran that RIA in in 
uh, parallel, if you will, because uh, the RIA was uh, just, it, it wasn't gigantic on its own. My RIA wasn't gigantic on its own. It was piecemeal engagements. I would work with a client for three months, help them with their foundation, sell an affordable plan, and then move on to the next client. Because nobody had any assets. So they didn't need a long-term relationship. And it was like, if you do these five things in the next two years, you're going to be set up really well when your income quadruples. So do these five things and, you know, keep it 400 bucks for this three month relationship. Um, so it was in that two year phase with that fee only firm that I identified, I can come in and I can figure out what the opportunities are to add scale, to systematize the procedures, and to increase efficiency in this firm. And I think that was the the early green shoots, if you will, of my own personal entrepreneurial fever, where I was thinking, if I were an owner or a part owner in, the, in this business, what decisions would I be making? How would I be spending the technology budget to move this firm forward? And we had very good things that were added to that business. And when it came time to move away from that firm, move away from Portland to Dallas, I said, boy, if I can do that for one firm, let me do that on a consulting basis. Let me do it with content. This is when blogs were starting to take off in 2009. And when Twitter was just this brand new site that no one knew what to do with it, I saw that as an opportunity to share content, share what I was feeling and make a business out of it. So it really kind of was that leap, but I had confidence that I had found this kind of niche that was starting to grow in its early phases because there were a few solo advisors that I connected with on Twitter of all places and people were starting to subscribe to my RSS feed. Remember those back in 2008, 2009, and we were starting to share that information about starting a firm and running technology. So that was confirmation to me that there was an audience out there, there was demand for it, and I could probably grow that and figure out how to make a business of it. One thing that I think your story is really highlighting is you start a business because you see a need. And I think that's really important. And like the best entrepreneurs that I know, like that's the reason why they start their firm is because they see a need that nobody else is meeting that need. And so they almost started out of necessity. Well, quite honestly, when you think about financial advisor technology in 2009, there were effectively like four people writing about it. Four. And I thought, well, if I did something in the consumer space, there's no shortage of people writing articles for Money Magazine and CBS Market Watch and all these other places. It's harder for me to be one out of 10,000 than it is to be one out of four, soon to be one out of five. Let me focus on that area. So that was a little bit of that intelligence of where do I have the better chance to kind of pop and to be visible? It was hard to do that with one out of 10,000 than it was to do do it one out of five. And so that speaks to all this niche, you know, identify your niche. If you can identify a place that if there's only five other practitioners in the nation, well, you can be six and you got a pretty good chance of winning that business. If you find a niche that is 20,000 people or 100 million women, uh, it's going to be hard to differentiate yourself in such a diluted uh, area. So are you telling people that there's a, an opportunity to compete with you in the technology space? Absolutely, there is. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I don't own this space. It's not a monopoly, but I have an eight-year head start. Uh, I have subscribers, <laughs> right? You're going to have to compete with that. But absolutely, I welcome it because if you see that there's still more need, and, and 
we were talking before we went live that I've taken a little bit of a breather with the production of my content. That's an opportunity for somebody to come on. And if you can produce content with great volume and extremely good quality, more power to you. And it should put me on notice when someone else is able to do work and even better work than me. Well, I can't sit idle. I can't expect to be comfortable in my business. And that should resonate with anybody listening to this podcast that, if you get comfortable and you're not interested in growing and you're not interested in buying technology in your business, guess what? The RIA down the street or the entrepreneur who's thinking about getting into financial planning is going to eat you for lunch because they're going to have a little bit more hustle and a little bit more work effort. So you're going to have to do some work and, uh, and hustle in order to you know, do, what it, do whatever it is you want to do. So looking back at 2009, what was the purpose of your blogging and your video blogs? Like, what were you trying to achieve? I was trying to be uh, from a national level, uh, just more recognized as somebody who wrote intelligently about financial advisor technology or financial planning technology. So I focused on those core areas where I tried to learn as much as I could about the CRM document management, financial planning, portfolio management, software solutions for advisors, and be able to speak uh, with with an expert opinion and with uh, some knowledge on that. And again, um, increase, I guess, notoriety and awareness that I am providing lots of information for free for no membership fee. Just go to my website, consume this, and if you like it, be, be a subscriber, which is also free. Um, and let's all make better businesses together. And so that's kind of what I saw was the opportunity in 2009. So has that changed between then and now? Yes, it changes every year. <laughs> um, and so now I, I, again, before we started recording, I, I somewhat feel that I have reached a plateau in my audience, the FPPAD audience, that there seems to be a finite number of advisors who are really interested in technology and are really dedicated to buying it and implementing it and using it in their business. And I think I have really good representation from those advisors who are part of my audience. But then there's a huge portion of advisors that maybe it's they don't feel that it's their job function or they don't have the technical capacity or the aptitude for learning about technology, or there's an employee in the firm who's charged with doing that, or they're just their business is where it is and they're not interested in making new technology investments because they'll never get that money back out of it, which is kind of a corollary to uh, physicians you know, who are nearing retirement. They're like, I'm not going to get medical records. I'll never see that money back when I uh, retire out of my business. So I, I see some of that there. I'm, I kind of paint with a broad brush. I don't really know the statistics behind it, but I'm, I'm sensitive to the, the flatlining or the plateau, if you will, in, in my audience. I'm trying to figure out what makes the most sense from a content perspective, from an educational perspective, what makes the most sense for me to create in order to continue to add value to my existing community, but also explore ways uh, that there may be other communities and other like-minded people who would benefit from the, the things that I know about financial services technology. So maybe this would be a good place. If the listeners hear this and are like, hey, this is what I want from FPPAD, 
reach out to you. Well, here's the challenge, Hannah. The the thing that is interesting is, do I want to be a full-time reviewer of software? And uh, I have to have to be totally honest here. And it's like the idea of doing 200 reviews a year and publishing them, man, that seems like a grind. But it's important work. Uh, so I'm I'm on the fence about that. I know I can do it, but I'd like to be doing more beneficial stuff rather than just be the review guy. But maybe some reviews are required in order to open up opportunities and doors for other types of content. So yeah, anybody who's listening, my email is bill at fppad.com. Send me your thoughts and ideas. And, and plenty of people already have in the beginning of 2017 uh, as I try to figure out things. So I, I'm open. I want to hear your thoughts because when it benefits you as a subscriber, as the listener, as the reader, uh, then it's worthwhile for me to pursue it. And if there's hundreds or thousands of you out there that benefit from it, well, it, it's worth doing. You know, one thing, the more I talk to more entrepreneurs, everything, their businesses are always changing. And if they're really motivated by making a difference, I mean, obviously money is important, but if money's not the primary driver for them, the, their businesses go through these normal cycles, if you would, and things change and that reevaluation is always, is always there. And why we're doing something like that's a really, really good question to always be asking. That's correct. I think I was listening to who is it the, the Mr. Money Mustache? I stumbled across a presentation that I think that he did at the World Domination Summit. So that's Chris Gilbo, uh, who I follow on Twitter, but don't really consume much of his content. But I know he puts on that World Domination Summit, and he got the mustache guy. I don't I don't remember his first name. Do you know his first name, Hannah? I don't. All right. So he's Mr. Money Mustache, and he's got these mustachians who are all about uh, living. I don't know that it's frugally, but, you know, getting the most out of your money and putting the right things first. And so he has a presentation from like the 2016 World Domination Summit. I think you can search for it on YouTube. It's a decent 22-minute presentation. You get to three-quarters of the way into it. Maybe it's halfway. And he says that the, the work is really worth doing when you don't have to do it for the money. So certainly from an entrepreneurial perspective, you think about, all right, well, fast forward to five years when my startup takes off or my business takes off and then I don't have to worry about putting food on my table. What is it you want to do when you wake up Monday morning? What is that thing? Um, and so I, I've had the, I guess, flexibility and the privilege to be able to do that and kind of reinvent things year after year with FBPAD. Uh, and I'm trying to do that in 2017. And the answer is not so clear. So again, that the feedback is really helpful, but um, I I got to figure out what it is that is worth doing those Mondays through Fridays. What are your thoughts on that? Like when anybody watches the FP pad videos, I mean, you're jumping in and out, high energy. I mean, why are you doing that versus kind of the traditional model that we've seen in financial planning? Oh, what a fantastic... Um, what a fantastic way to get into it. So what I, so I, I counter back, what is the traditional model? Again, this is air quotes on podcast country. What is the traditional model of financial planning and why does it exist? And so for entrepreneurs, for, for people in their first or second job in this industry, yes, you can survey the landscape and there's a lot of existing content out there, but why is it that way? And to me, much of it seems very contrived. It is very manufactured working with money and uh, talking about money, it requires or not requires, but there seems to be that level of 
consideration that it needs to be really formal. Uh, we have to wear suit and ties and be very presentable and be trustworthy. And wearing suit and ties and, and fancy clothes helps with being viewed as trustworthy. Um, so there's this stuff that exists from a legacy perspective. And um, when I when I come in and I see that opportunity, I was like, well, it kind of doesn't need to be that way. Um, so I don't view it as the traditional way. I just view it as some way that things have always been done. Where do I want to go with this? Why am I bouncing around? Why am I always high energy in my videos? That is me. So I don't have to put on a game face. I don't have to put on an act when talking about the benefits that can be attained by using financial technology. That's me. Because when we talked about what's that thing that you want to do when money is not the main object, it's finding out what technology exists that professionals can use to increase the quality of their advice and increase access to that advice at prices that the the world or the nation, uh, United States citizens, for planning perspectives, at a price that they can afford. And if we can get into that technology, man, who would not be excited about it? It should be empowering. It should be really thrilling to think about, oh, this new add-in to CRM helps me get more information and higher quality information about my clients, and I can look at profiles, and I can look at risk information, that when crazy stuff happens in politics or the market or whatever stuff that I can't control, I can at least go into my CRM and see those types of people that are going to get the most benefit out of my immediate contact. And then there's other people because the data I have in my CRM that are not really worried about those things that are outside their control. And so, you know, they don't need to be at the top of my list when I make my phone calls. And that type of technology helps the advisor just to be more effective and efficient in advice delivery and those conversations with clients. So again, I come back to how can you not be excited about it? So that's me. That's my authentic self coming out about covering this technology because I am excited about the benefits that it can offer to professionals of, of all kind. And that's when it, when it comes down to like sales pitches and things that seem very, you know, not promoting of fiduciary advice and objective advice. I'm not excited about that stuff. And that should come out and it does come out in some content and some videos, um, where you can tell that my tone of my voice drops, my excitement decreases because it's not really that thrilling and not, not that exciting. How did advisors respond uh, when they saw these videos, because I think it's fair to say that your content is different than what was out there beforehand. Before I started the video, to my knowledge, there was no video or periodic video. The video that we're talking about, it's, it's the FP pad bits and bytes um, that there's a story here that we'll talk about. I suspended it. I didn't terminate it. I reserved the right to turn it on at any time. But nevertheless, I did a hundred episodes and I released it Friday morning, and it was in five or six minutes a video broadcast covering three or four of the technology stories that I felt were the most relevant to independent investment advisors. So before I started that, there was no other video broadcast of any kind about this um, uh, about this content. There were plenty of written articles. So we get back into the, do you want to be one out of 10,000, or do you want to be one out of five? And in this case, the opportunity to create a periodic video about financial 
planning technology was the opportunity to be one out of one. There was nobody else doing it. So I decided I'm going to decrease the amount of writing that I do and do this video production. And it was, I suppose, a wild success. I should be super thrilled with the success of it. Uh, the channel at uh, on YouTube, it's youtube.com slash fppad, has over a thousand subscribers. And the Friday videos were getting roughly 800 to 1,000 views. I mean, that's phenomenal in financial planner territory where there's like a desert of content for financial planners on YouTube. And so I, I celebrate that, but you hear the the reservation in my mind that it's like, well, there's 300,000 financial advisors in the nation. Why aren't more of them watching this? It's on YouTube. It's free. It costs you all of five minutes. And hopefully I'm creating it with the idea in mind that you can use one or two of these ideas and stories for your business. So I do celebrate its success, um, and I decided to suspend it partly because it would take me all day Thursday to make those broadcasts. I'm looking forward to having my Thursdays back, and it, I am enjoying them. So I still push content out. It comes out Friday morning in an email, and I'm actually recording a, I guess, podcast because I'm just kind of dictating what I write in the email. But if you don't have time to read my email, plug in my podcast to your car or your treadmill and you can just get the updates Friday morning. So I continue to do those updates. I just don't do them in the video format. Very interesting. It'll be, there's so many trends right now that are just so interesting to follow. And I'm just curious to see what it'll be like in five years. Like, will video be picking back up? I mean, and just, there's so many changes that happen. Well, I am in the belief camp, if you will, that, In a relationship-based business, which is financial advising and financial planning, transparency and authenticity wins. And there is no medium more effective at communicating honesty, authenticity, and transparency than video. And so you talked about, well, what about the traditional model of, you know, content or whatever, you know, financial planning? The traditional model is, I need to put a suit on. I need to have wood paneling in my office. I need to have a formal conference room that looks really expensive or whatever the whatever the formal is. And I got to put on this act that I'm a know-it-all financial advisor and I can answer any financial question that any client could throw my way. Um, it, quite honestly, for me, being 38 years old, I don't want an advisor who has that attitude. I want the advisor who says, wow, Bill, that's interesting. I don't know the answer to that, but I know some smart people or I have smart people in our organization that can help you with that or let's explore that or let's talk about that stuff. Uh, I kind of want that collaborative experience and I kind of want to do it in my jeans and t-shirt rather than having to dress up and go through the whole suits and stuff. And so the medium of video, being able to show your true self, your authentic self and doing that in a way that is accessible to your target audience uh, for the next five years. I think if you want to be successful as an advisor, this is a skill that you're going to have to add to your toolkit. Uh, and I say a skill that you have to add because I'll tell you what, anybody puts a camera in your face and say, act natural, that's the last thing you're going to do. So the skill that you need to add and learn is how to disengage yourself from your thoughts of, oh, I need to be professional and I can't make mistakes and I have to pronunciate everything perfectly and I can't, you know, get the tax 
rates incorrect in this little podcast. You know, I you're not going to get the tax rates right in the our one-on-one meeting. Why should I expect that you get them right in this little video update that you're doing? As long as you know that you have access to the right information, that's what I care about. I care about the strategy and I care about the communication. So video communicates it. Uh, sorry, a, a blog post, a written blog post. It's great for search engine optimization, but it's terrible for communicating authenticity and, and relationship potential. Yeah, there's so much that advisors could be doing with video. Um, I know we talked a little bit about this beforehand, um, but so let's talk about how should, not how should, how could advisors incorporate video into their practice? So as easily as as possible. And so I think one of the wrong answers is thinking that you have to sink ten to $20,000 into a studio that has a green screen or that has like a TriCaster or multiple cameras and stuff. Yes, you can do that, but it speaks toward that real formal, traditional, again, air quotes, um, characteristics that that some practitioners feel that they need to maintain, or quite honestly, if they want to attract clients where clients value that um, that professional um, facade, a facade's not a great word for it, but I think it's appropriate. Um, you know, you're going to have, you're, you're going to attract those types of clients who want to buy into the facade. But if you're, as Carl Richards says, part of the secret society of financial planners, you don't want clients who want to buy into the facade of, you know, whatever that facade is. You want clients who are comfortable opening up, talking about stuff that in many times they don't even talk to their spouses about or their immediate family. Um, so how can you incorporate video? Well, now we have so many tools available to us where you can activate Periscope on your phone and you can broadcast live. You can do the same with Facebook Live. Um, but I guess I would caution against using live video out of the gate. Uh, live video is hard unless you have that comfort with it, that you know what you're going to say, that you are going to keep it kind of succinct, and that you're confident in front of the camera. And in, again, not confident from, uh, I'm going to put on a, a mask and pretend to be an advisor that I'm not, confident in just allowing your authentic self to come out. Um, and again, some people can sit in front of a camera and they do that naturally the first time, but the rest of us, because we live in the real world, it's nerve wracking speaking in front of a camera. So quite honestly, sit down in front of your phone, get a little tripod, turn your phone on, hit record and pretend that you were broadcasting live, speak to the camera, have little note cards and stuff. Note cards are fine. Um, if I were to watch your video on YouTube and you had to use some note cards there, if your content is great and you're passionate about it, I don't care that you have note cards. It doesn't look less professional. You're trying to provide a service and provide some value. Do it in whatever way you can. So that's where we're talking about getting away from the, you know, you don't need a teleprompter. You know, it helps. But what matters is your content and how comfortable and how authentic you appear when delivering this content. So the, the tip was record yourself in front of your cell phone, watch it. It's hard watching yourself, um, but share it with uh, your spouse or a family member and get their thoughts on it, on ways that you can improve your, your rehearsal stuff and ways that you can just relax a little bit. Do that 10, 20 times. Um, it's putting in the repetitions that helps you do it. 
Um, and then I guess think about starting a YouTube channel. Uh, that's really where most of the information can be disseminated. It ranks fairly well on search results. And then what do I do when I create a video? Well, think about how you've helped clients in the last six months or even questions that you received in the last week. Your client or your prospect, they've wanted your help and you've helped them. So why don't you think about creating some type of content and some type of video that addresses exactly that, that opportunity where you provided value and you, and you helped somebody. And the more and more that you do it, uh, you should be able to get into a rhythm. You should be very comfortable with it. And then you can probably graduate to the Periscope and, and uh, live YouTube and Facebook Live because there's a lot less nerve-wracking stuff to think about because you've done it 20 and 30 times. You don't have to think about all the little things that go with it. Now you're thinking about, well, how, how do I maximize this live broadcast to, to maximize the, the opportunity and the education value for, for whoever watches it? One of the things I've, um, I've been learning a lot about video lately, um, some of the listeners may know, but my husband has a strong background in video. So we're kind of exploring this um, on some various fronts, but it's, I've been really surprised at how much pep- preparation needs to go into videos. Like it, cause I've always thought, you know, I just get up and talk like I would as a presentation. You, you, I just talk and it records it. And I, you know, one of the fastest ways to produce content, but adding in the time beforehand really does make a big difference in the quality of the product that you do. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It is important to put in that pre-production time. It's to figure out what you're going to talk about. Do you need any visual aids? If you need visual aids, are you going to make slides on a computer? Or are you going to get uh, a piece of paper and a Sharpie? Uh, how do you want to convey some of that information? I think one one thing to avoid is talking into a camera for five minutes from one room front to back. Um, uh, my colleague and I, we're just, we've seen so many of these, what we call talking head videos. It's really, really hard to capture engagement and to sustain that attention when you're looking at a camera, whether it be a webcam or a camera that you get, and you're just talking for five minutes. It's really tough. So that's where the pre-production comes into play. It says, how can I break this into a couple of parts? How can I make something with paper and Sharpie? Or how can I make a slide out of PowerPoint or a keynote? You think about ways to put it together. And that absolutely helps break up your content and make it a little bit more compelling. Uh, and one of the keys to video, so if, if you're listening, pay attention. This is really important. But the key is take that first 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and inform the viewer what it is they are about to learn. Get to the point. Don't bury the lead. Tell me what I'm about to learn in the rest of the video. And if you communicate that effectively, you'll probably get my time for the next eight minutes or 16 minutes, no matter how long your video is. You told me up front what I'm supposed to get out of your video, I'm very inclined to stick around and give you a chance. But if you don't tell me in the first 10, 15 seconds about what, why this video even exists, you're not giving me a lot of purpose or reason to stick around. Because again, if you're putting your videos on YouTube, YouTube's giving me this nice distracting list of thumbnails on the right-hand side, because I'm going to go watch that other stuff when your video is not very entertaining. Looking at who does video well, and it doesn't obviously doesn't have to be in the financial planning space, but are there any producers or creators of video that you would recommend people go watch and kind of just see their style, just in general, to kind of get a better idea of what to do with video? I suppose, yes. So 
um, for, I, I don't know, I'll just throw right out there. It is Casey Neistat, a filmmaker and who just, uh, again, in, in just like me, would not like me, suspended what he had was a daily vlog. Uh, Casey Neistat was a filmmaker. He had a couple videos that were very popular and went viral um, in the late 2000s, decided uh, two years ago to start creating a video per day. That's a daily vlog. Um, so people used to blog on websites because that was a web log. Now that they create these video logs, they mash that up and that's what a vlog is. So he would document what would happen every day in New York City where he's based and also take his camera with him as he traveled the world uh, speaking and doing all sorts of stuff whether it's a personal trip or a trip for business and that is that's really the cream of the crop from the style but what I want someone to do is go to Casey Neistat's channel it's C-A-S-E-Y N-E-I-S-T-A-T um, auto, Google autocomplete will, will nail it for you and just watch a random vlog and you see the whole storytelling. And these things are hard to create, quite honestly. They take a lot of energy, a lot of effort, and some knowledge of basic camera equipment and a lot of editing. So that's really, this is the cream of the crop. Uh, but you can kind of take that as a takeaway and think about how could I apply that to my own storytelling? How could I use this point of view style filming with a camera that I can hold in a tripod or I can hold it in my hand? How can I get good audio quality? So there's a couple easy, low-cost microphones that you can buy and plug into a camera. And quite honestly, you can plug a, a microphone into your iPhone and think about, well, now that I have the tools to make my video happen, what's the purpose? What am I trying to document? What's the value to my audience? So the, the vlogs is really are really interesting because there's really no purpose other than documenting what happens during the day. And it's great when you're Casey Neistat living in New York City and having all the access to the things that he does in New York City. Uh, I don't live in New York City. Uh, I, don't, I don't travel across the world for all sorts of stuff yet. Um, <laughs> so my vlog may not be as compelling or as interesting, but I know when we talked about niches and content to create, I know that I can cover certain things in a creative way and try to convey that and document it and, and tell a story to my audience. And so if you can find that, that balance and that blend, um, where you're doing that point of view style video capture, you're narrating, you're describing what's going on, or you're trying to explain something to a viewer, you can start taking cues from his videos on how you might put that together. So I have the technology expert for financial planning. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, technology is creating so much change within the financial planning profession. Where do you see the profession going in with technology or just in general? The good news is that there are more and more technology solutions that advisors and planners can use in their business. So there are more choices, but the downside is with more choices comes more confusion about which is the air quotes best for my business and for my, my clients. Uh, and so there often leads to a lot of uh, paralysis by analysis and, and indecision. Um, so I, I would be remiss to not talk about robo advisors, um, which is a, uh, the when I use Robo Advisor, I do it in that paradoxical way because these are all robotic; they don't require any human intervention. And yes, advisor is in the name, but that's an oxymoron because Robo and Advisor should not be able to exist at the same time because there's really no advice generated by this Robo thing. 
it, it's an algorithm, it's a calculator. You put in a bunch of inputs, and those inputs always generate some sort of allocation output. Uh, and when you go to any robo-advisor site to say, hey, what should I do with $5,000? The answer is, you should invest $5,000. There's there's really no other answer that you receive because these services live and die by you investing your $5,000. So the, the benefit, though, is the ability to establish models and asset allocations for clients to be able to turn on this rebalancing that does it very frequently. Some of these do it every day. Uh, there's some debate over whether or not that's actually beneficial, but um, you can listen to a Michael Kitsis podcast if you want to get in, get into the details of that. But the ability to kind of provide broad-based asset allocation in inexpensive investments and do it at a low cost, that should be really, really good for the, the nation as a whole. But it only covers a little sliver of what the real pie is of the financial planner benefit. Um, so financial planners are looking at cash flow and credit cards and estate planning and insurance planning and retirement plans and health benefits at work or health benefits as a solo business owner. Those are the things that planners can work on. And that's the other 85% or 90% of the pie. That's really important. And so the benefit to many planners is you need to decide, are you an expert in investment selection? Then if so, I think you should focus on that niche and make your pie almost 100% of investment selection and investment process. And you might want to be a chief investment officer for an RIA or run an investment outsourcing resource for a network of RIAs. If you live and breathe investments, go do that. But don't kid yourself that you can do investments and you can do all this other stuff as well because I, I only have 40 hours in a week. You only have 40 hours in a week. How are you going to allocate your, your pie to all that activity? And so if you're not an expert in investments, you can use these automated investment services and then open up your time to focus on cash flow and insurance information, estate information. And that's where these other tools uh, like Good CRM and like Profiles for Clients, those are the technology that I'm paying attention to in 2017, is to be able to figure out, can I use account aggregation with Bill Winterberg's accounts? And then the account aggregation tells me how conservative or how risky Bill is based on his spending, and can I kind of establish some sort of profile that pops up in his CRM or establish a profile for his household? So when I have the next conversations with him, we kind of know what Bill and his household are really sensitive towards because it's promoted by the technology. It's not like forced on the advisor, but it's a promotion, and it, it augments what the advisor already does with with the relationship-based inter interactivity. And so I'm interested in some of the profiling capabilities of technology coming coming this year. And many of them already exist as well. So I, I guess I would like to see an increased adoption of these profiling tools in 2017. I think that's one of the really interesting things looking forward is how do we take this advice that we give to clients and scale it? Well, I guess the bigger question is, number one, do we want to do that? And then number two, how do people do that well? And I'm not sure that I've seen many examples of that being done well. I Generally, I think I would agree with you. There was some magic number of how many friendships you could have. Um, look it up, Google it. I don't remember who said it. It's like 150 is the number of relationships you could realistically contain in your brain. Um, and you think about with financial planners, you can probably manage between 100 and 200 actual household relationships from a financial planning perspective. And that might be great. Is there a way to use technology to make that number larger? I don't know. Yes or no. Um, does it damage the quality of the relationship? Well, if you have the appropriate use of technology, it should not damage 
the quality of the relationship. It, it, it should enhance the quality of the relationship. But I guess there is some sort of ceiling. You know, there is some point of diminishing returns when you hit maybe a thousand clients or 2000 clients. There just aren't enough hours in the day to take all those phone calls. But the answer is somewhere in between. And, and here's an issue with the industry as a whole. Every year, the number of advisors and planners is diminishing. It's going down. But year after year, the number of consumers who deserve to get access to uh, fiduciary advice at a price that they could afford increases. And so without technology, I don't see the equation going in the right direction of, of the ratio. So that's why I'm a firm believer in maybe I can't correct the diminishing numbers of advisors, but what I can help and augment is empowering the remaining advisors to be more efficient, to be more effective with the 40 hours that we all want to work or choose to work uh, each and every week and get the most out of that and help the most number of people. Is that not a really good cause and purpose for financial planning as an industry industry as a whole? And so that's why I focus my, my time and my energy on technology for helping that ratio uh, so that planners can truly give good service to as many households as is you know, reasonable, uh, given the technology solutions, as well as the hours in the week in place. When I talk to young advisors, I always try to emphasize, like, the profession needs you. <laughs> like, we need you to be successful. Um, and I think there's so much opportunity and there's such demand uh, in the public. And the more the public actually understands what planning is versus just an investment service, I think that demand is only going to, I mean, I, I see it as skyrocketing. So there's so much potential uh, for advisors coming into the field. I do wholeheartedly agree with that. It's not going to be a light switch. It's not going to happen in one year. But for those advisors listening, number one, do this because it is what you are passionate about. It is what you think of doing Monday through Friday, five days a week, or whenever you want to dictate your work hours. That's why you should do it. And it's nice that there's need for it too. That's icing on the cake. Uh, Don't get into this industry because... Um, it's needed purely. Do it because you know that this is what you want to be doing. And then the good news is there will be this demand. Uh, the numbers are going in the right way that more and more people are going to be demanding this, whether it comes via their employer, whether it comes from a call center-based uh, service, or whether it comes from some, some of the established uh, firms that operate today. So I want to get your thoughts on that call center, because I think that that is becoming a growing place where people are looking to hire CFP candidates or, you know, actual CFPs. What are your thoughts on young advisors going to work for call centers that are actually providing financial planning or trying to provide financial planning? Yeah, good, good clarification there. So I think I would endorse. It's a tough decision, and maybe I have to walk things back in the in the next year or two. But right now, Vanguard is doing a lot of hiring of CFP professionals. I understand that Schwab's Intelligent Advisory Service is also hiring CFP professionals, um, and and trying to organize these these call centers around uh, fiduciary advice for clients. So that being said, I would probably endorse. A, uh, a new professional to go through that experience. But the caveat is I would expect some type of burnout. I would be conscious of realistic workloads. Um, and 
I think still in that call center environment, you can still think like an entrepreneur, like how many hours do you work a week and how many relationships and households are you engaged with and how can you use and your technology and how can you systemize your own personal processes while being respectful and mindful of the corporate, you know, technology that they buy and kind of train you to, to use, um, you can still think like an entrepreneur for the the households that you serve on how can I systematize the advice and things that I learned about these clients. Um, it's not unlike residency training for medical professionals. And I kind of know what I'm talking about because I'm married to a physician who's gone through the process. And basically in three years, you're a an intern in your first year and you're a resident years two and years three. And you basically see as many patients as is like logistically possible in three years. And so you're thrown into the uh, acute care and and chronic care and and long-term care situations. You go through all your different rotations and you you just spend three years going through all sorts of stuff. And if you want, after your three-year residency, you can go into general practice and kind of work as that generalist, um, you you know, like pediatrics or internal medicine or, or gynecology or something. And if you want, you can become even further subspecialized. And so I kind of see the the CFP call center environment as maybe your first year or first two years of your residency, um, where it's a great learning experience. Um, and I'm sure that the firms aren't going to appreciate me saying this, but I don't see it as long-term viable for a person. Now, from a corporate organization, it's viable as long as you can manage that turnover and keep the seats occupied with CFP professionals who are coming out of uh, graduate programs. Um, so I think from the corporate entity, they have to look at it that way and manage the turnover. But for an individual, it's, I can't think of many other situations where you're going to get introduced to hundreds, if not maybe a thousand households in the first two or three years of your career, seeing anything and everything. And that's kind of good because then you find out, boy, there's certain clients that I really love talking to. There's certain situations that I'm really interested in working on the planning nuances And the only way you do, well, not the only way, but a quick way to do that is by working with a thousand households in your first two years. And I think so much of when we start looking at our career and you're going to have multiple jobs, like the job that you start out with is most likely not going to be the job that you stay in your whole career. I mean, some people are fortunate in that way, but, but not many. And I think that, you know, you make whatever you make out of the job that you have. So if you approach it as a learning experience, there's so much that you can gain from it. I, I definitely agree with that, Hannah. So the job, jobs are temporary. Your skills are permanent. And so look at every job with that lens of what skills can I curate? Can I develop? What skills am I lacking? What skills can this job help me add to my whole resume? And it, it it's interesting because um, before I we made the podcast. I was talking to myself, my brain, like what, what kind of sage advice could I do? One of the things that comes up a lot is a CFP professional or somebody who just came out of a program wants to get that first job. And so they go through the interview process and it's all this back and forth of what firm to work for. And your opportunity as a, as a freshly graduated student and a new CFP who's uh, trying to get your work experience, but you pass the exam, think about it in terms of the benefits for uh, users and for advisors. Can you reinforce the benefits for that firm? 
Um, so tell me how you're going to improve the business. Tell me how you're going to work within the business. Tell me how you're going to help the business solve some challenges and maximize some opportunities that it has. Um, rather than say, I went to such and such college and I did this in the past and I did this in the past. Those are all your jobs, but it doesn't tell me anything, anything about your skill set. Uh, so tell me, you know, can you identify opportunities in this firm? Can you read between the lines in the job description about what the firm really wants? Not what it says its requirements are, but what, what can you infer by what the firm really wants? And then position your answers to say, I reinforce everything this is, that this firm wants in terms of its goals. And also help educate me about more goals for the firm because I can you know, increase my skill set to satisfy those goals. So again, those jobs, they're all temporary. Your skills are lifelong. So listen to me. I, I did software for 10 years. I do video production. And these are all skills that I'm never going to lose no matter what job is presented to me or no matter what job I take. Because I now know going forward in 2017, I can turn on some of this systematic thinking like a software engineer. I can turn on the video production skill set that I had. I can do this interviewing stuff that, that I've been doing for the last seven years. Those are skills that I can turn into new opportunities. And the cool thing is that software and websites and being able to turn on these online businesses, it is far easier to do that and execute on it than it ever has been in the past. Well, as we kind of wrap up, is there any other thoughts or anything that we missed that we want to be sure to touch on before we sign off? Well, we were talking about like like-minded individuals. Um, I cannot think of a better organization than the XY Planning Network. Um, to pay attention to. Uh, I'm not affiliated with them. I'm not paid to promote them, but I believe in the work that they do and the momentum and the energy in that organization is infectious in a positive way. Uh, so I'm starting to continue to support and I'll go on to Quora, which is really interesting. People on Quora say, you know, can help me with X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, you can find planners that charge by the hour that do low cost retainers at the XY planning network. You don't need lots of money and you don't need to pay 1%, which is kind of what the industry standard is again, air quotes standard. But I think if you're in that affinity, figure out how you can find a firm that is part of the XY planning network or find a study group with a couple people in the XY planning network. Um, and also the Garrett Planning Network should be mentioned as well, who are trying to do what we had talked about by scaling their business, adding technology, but doing it in a way that most Americans can afford and they find approachable. And so uh, what did I say earlier? You just, you just have to do the work. You can't get comfortable. You can't take it easy. Doing the work means go to the XY Planning website, find some profiles and call some people. Say, can I go have lunch with you? Can we have coffee together? Can we do a virtual hangout? Uh, if the firms are likewise, call them. You have to act because guess what? They're not going to call you. And so to to the uh, victor go the spoils. When you start calling, you start sending out those emails and you start making that contact, that's going to do dramatic things to increase your network and increase your connections. Because again, with things like Twitter and Facebook, it's so far easier for us to introduce those connections, solidify those connections, and then and then maximize those connections. And if you do it in an authentic way, I think that's really cool. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, be sure to review us on iTunes or your favorite Android player. We'll talk to you all next week.